One of the most well-known pieces of our story, perhaps, is the calling of those first disciples. So hear it the way Matthew tells it. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the lake in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the, ro on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. As I begin, I want to thank Ann for that wonderful prayer. It was, the whole, it was the whole worship in one prayer. I hope you heard it. And thanks to Dan for that setup. I'm going to quote Bonhoeffer in my sermon as well. And I want to say to you that I think this is a tough topic for progressive churches. You know, those of us, Ann said, uh, we used to emphasize professing Jesus more maybe than following Jesus. And for those of us who have turned from professing Jesus as the center of our understanding to following Jesus, I think it's kind of hard. What does that mean? Are you following? Are we following? What does that mean for progressive congregations if the profession of Jesus is not as important as following? Are we really doing that? Kind of a tough topic for us, I think. When we read the Bible in retrospect, superimposing 20 centuries of orthodoxy and allowing a century of hard fundamentalism and decades of evangelical piety to frame the reading, the stories all sound easy. In today's story, for example, Jesus, the Son of God, walks by, casually calls out to a couple fishermen, follow me. And because they intuitively sense the presence of divinity, they immediately drop everything despite family and livelihood, and they embark on a life-changing stroll into the history books, jumping at the chance to make the Bible's top 12 of all time as one of the famed apostles. That's how it happened, right? And if Jesus were to call you today, you'd just drop it all too, right? Maybe not. If we read the Bible as if hearing it in our present reality, that is, not knowing the future, only knowing what we can know today, and knowing the pressures of everyday life, of making a living, of providing for family, 
and knowing all the charlatans who have claimed to be the next religious superstar, well, we might think again about this story. Jesus walked by and called, and they left their families, quit their livelihoods, dropped everything, and immediately began following a complete unknown, a newcomer to the area who seemed to be some kind of prophet. They just dropped everything? Wasn't that a little rash? Don't you think they should have done a little homework, maybe done a background check on Jesus, ask a few questions? As I told you last week, to get the full impact of any story in one of the Gospels, we need to learn to read each Gospel in its own context without assuming the details of the other Gospels. For this particular story, that means that as opposed to the other Gospel stories of the calling of the first disciples, the event in Matthew occurs at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has not yet begun performing miracles, drawing crowds across the whole countryside. He has no name recognition in Matthew. He's just a stranger making an offer to a couple of average Joes. And the offer itself is a little curious, scholars tell us. He doesn't offer fame or fortune, not even any obvious deep spiritual blessing. Jesus just says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. No one's exactly sure what that means, all that fishing for people might entail. When you add all of this up, reading it for fa at face value, if we can let it stand on its own, the, the story truly is remarkable. He was an unknown. His calling was questionable, and yet they dropped everything anyway. In Salvation on Sand Mountain, the powerful first-person account of snake-handling religion in the Appalachian Mountains, New York Times reporter Dennis Covington says of his truly bizarre experience in handling a rattlesnake at a Pentecostal revival service, he says, there are moments when you stand on the brink of a new experience and understand that you have no choice about it. Either you walk into the experience or you turn away from it, but you know that no matter what you choose, you will have altered your life in some permanent way. Either way, there will be consequences. These soon-to-be disciples must have had that kind of experience with Jesus. I wonder, if made, I wonder if it made the hair stand up on the back of their necks when he called and they responded inexplicably responded. Even as they left their nets and began on this new adventure, were they saying to themselves, what am I doing? Who is this guy? Where are we going and why? And why am I doing this? And yet I cannot say no. In his commentary on this text, Bill Doles notes that this response was actually not all that uncommon in the first century. The disciples of a powerful, well-known mentor often issued uh, in the student leaving family in order to pursue their mentor's guidance. What is unusual, Dole says, almost unheard of at this time, is for the teacher to take the initiative. 
In this Middle Eastern culture, influenced by the paradigm of honor and shame from the Far East, teachers did not stoop to recruiting their students. They would, that would have been considered beneath them. The best mentors taught and spread their influence. They earned their reputations, and then students came to them. These sages received students who came asking, maybe groveling, looking for instruction, seeking wisdom, but it would have been beneath their dignity to call for someone to come and be their student. It is a distinctive aspect of Christianity, however, this notion that God does seek us. This incarnational theology is modeled first in the story of creation, where God deigns to bend to the earth, forming that first man in the dust of the earth with God's own hands. And this idea then finds its apex in the life and death of Jesus, the Word made flesh, who lives a common life, even dies a criminal's death, dies with us, to us, for us, that God might know the full extent of our humanity by participating in it thoroughly. So this idea, God in touch with us rather than high above, has always been distasteful, if not outright repugnant to many of the faithful in other religions. But this idea is central to Christian thought. God takes the initiative. So as we read of Jesus coming to Capernaum and seeking out his followers, not from an Ivy League university or the upper caste of the city, but from the lakeshore, from among the ranks of the most ordinary of workers, those calloused and dirty, tired and uneducated fishermen, as we remark on the unpredictability of that act, the contradiction, the unsavory work of a God who comes to us, we can hear the conviction of St. Augustine who commented in his confessions, I could not seek you if you had not already found me. This sentiment that the agency of God always pre precedes human action. This understanding is echoed in the writings of the German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dan has already mentioned Bonhoeffer, who said discipleship is not an offer we make to Christ. It is only the call which creates the situation. Matthew's gospel story then begins with an affirmation that is still troubling to many but one that still has the power to change the world, one insecure heart at a time. God seeks us. God comes to us. God bids us come, even as Jesus offers us a role in the work of the divine on earth. And whether it was unique or not, let us not miss the overwhelming commitment that the response of those first fishermen implied. They left it all. Family, security, acceptance. And in place of all that familiarity, they walked with Jesus into a way that offered new life, but a way that was fraught with danger. Because giving power to the masses always offers a challenge to the systems of the earth. 
So these fishermen left a life of waking up to the sun, shining over the beauty of the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's a beautiful setting. They left all of that to walk with Jesus and to learn from him as he challenged the powers that be, critiqued the systems of the status quo, confronted the assumptions of religion, and painted a picture of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth that got them all killed. When one by one the 12 apostles were all being martyred for their faith, you have to wonder if they look back to their first days, Simon and Andrew, James and John, to that day on the lake and thought, what am I doing here? I gave it all up for this. Maybe it's because that was, that's such a difficult question, one that we would rather not consider the iconic disciples asking and one that we don't ever want to think of, we might have to ask. Maybe it's because it's so hard we've made it easy to follow. In his book, Engaging the Powers, Walter Wink says it this way, with his death, Jesus quickly entered into his own myth. He became larger than life. Worship of Jesus as God soon eclipsed the arduous task of continuing his work and living his way. The egalitarian shards of light which he let loose upon the earth were systematically tracked down and quenched or bottled or enshrined by the guardians of the status quo. The church itself has been a locus of the struggle between these two forces ever since. While the world, world at large has done all in its power to snuff out Jesus' significance. Now, it's not all that difficult to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, to walk the aisle, to revel in the celebrations of salvation and certitude, but it is as hard as it ever has been to follow. It takes just as much commitment today as it did for those first disciples. Following means sometimes putting aside our own best ideas and being open to a different vision. A different vision altogether. Following requires a humility, a submitting to the will and the way of someone else. The self-interest of a nation that loves its freedom makes it easy for us to think that we can all be leaders, at least leaders of our own lives. But Jesus invites us to think again to give up the confidence of leading and learn the childlike trust of following. But beware. You might still lose your family. His way will challenge your financial commitments. A commitment to the kingdom of God will make you rethink all the assumptions of national pride. Following a way that leads to a cross will put you at odds with every other partisan commitment from politics to ideology to orthodoxy. It's not hard to worship Jesus, but it's hard to be a follower. The conviction of saints and martyrs, however, fishermen and ordinary disciples across the ages is resounding. 
Following Jesus invites us to a way, hard as it is, that leads to life. However much you are willing to give to it, from the smallest commitment of your money to a commitment of your time to the investment of your whole life, the one who loses life for Jesus' sake will find life abundantly. It's hard to be a follower, but in a world of selfish concern, of narrow vision, a world bent on its own sure destruction, there is another way. Maybe Jesus is calling you today. May it be so. I put sentences to this prayer of intercession today based on three experiences that I had this week. As I said to some folks, Jesus got a workout in my heart this week and he's tired. So I have put together three scenarios that for me are three very distinct people that I do not name, hoping that in some way telling their story will remind you of people in your life that might give your Jesus a workout as well. On Wednesday, I was on my way to uh, a history of race in Charlotte, two-mile walk with Greg Gerald when my day got turned sideways and upside down and lasted all day. Friday, Becca was not in the, in the uh, office and I was answering the phone and a phone call came in and I took it and it turned my Saturday sideways and upside down and hospital visits and hospital visits and hospital visits. So maybe something in these words that I have put together to try to pray about three experiences from my week might resonate within you about experiences in your own. So let us pray. Gracious God, we pray this day for those who simply cannot find their way. They are willing to follow. They yearn to be led out of the dark places of their lives, but they simply cannot find their way. We pray for those who use substances to numb their pain, we can understand that desire. And so we pray that one action, one comment, one moment, one step at a time, they might make this time the time to begin again. And then we pray that tomorrow might be the next step to sobriety and to a clean way. Let us not lose hope, O oh God, but most of all, do not let them lose hope. May they find all the resources at their disposal, and may they follow that inner spark of goodness that lives within them to find their way out of the mess of their lives. We pray for those for whom life is just hard with strained relationships and a long string of bad luck and being born into situations beyond their control and beyond their making for those who cannot see how tomorrow is going to work out, much less envision a bright future. We pray for a sense of calm that might ease their sobs. And we pray for a generous amount of compassion that leads to action even when it's aggravating and inconvenient. 
We pray for patience and wisdom for them and for uh, those of us who walk alongside and for a strength to endure the long slog of moving out of desperation and into hope that there might be a future that holds some brightness. May our own lives be lived in a way worthy of following alongside. And may they follow that inner spark of goodness that lives within them to find their way out of the chaos of their lives. We pray this day for those whose end is near in clear ways. Even while we all know the end of our living looms in front of us, some people are granted a knowing of that and we don't know if it's better to know than to be kept in the dark and find death a surprise, but once you know, you cannot unknow. And that knowing leads to anticipated grief and anxiety of decision-making that strives to bring comfort and care. May they feel your full embrace, O oh God, and a peace that passes understanding. May they follow that inner spark of goodness that lives within them to find their way out of the grief of their lives. So if we are to follow in the way of Jesus, we will be called upon to hope and we will be called upon to act. We will be called upon to speak up and speak out. We'll be called upon to be present. We'll be called upon to pray and we will be called upon to fill in the gaps and we will be called upon to lead people out of the places where they cannot find their own way out. Make us followers of this way then, O oh God, we pray. <laughs>